Hello, space fans, and welcome to another episode of the Supercluster podcast. As you know, I'm Jamie, and I'm here with Robin. And we've also got a special guest who's going to tell us about a mission to the moon and also have a conversation about science communication in general. So, Robin, I'll pass it over to you. Thank you, Jamie. It's great to be back. And uh, hello to all our Supercluster podcast listeners out there. It's getting real busy in space. We are happy to be joined today by TJ Cooney. He is a space communicator here in our community and industry. We're big fans of his YouTube channel, I Need More Space, but we're even bigger fans of this extraordinary project that he's doing with Astrobotics and ULA and um, all the amazing things that are happening with the commercial space industry. Great to have you on, TJ. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here. TJ, you obviously have your, you know, your finger on the pulse of space exploration and you have your own YouTube channel called I Need More Space. I think we can all agree with that sentiment, especially Jamie. <laughs> I think oh, yeah. uh, we're all big space fans and you seem to be a huge space fan. I watched a lot of the videos on your channel. Before we even get into anything, I always ask space fans that I meet and start to get to know. And obviously space fans always become friends, but what's your favorite space thing? And maybe not favorite. Let's say what's the thing that made you be a space fan? Oh man, the thing that made me become a space fan. And I think that it's something that a lot of people in my age group can relate to is the film Apollo 13. I'll never forget going to see that film. I'm pretty sure it was the first movie I saw in theaters and it blew me away, and I was obsessed ever since. And I've just always had an affinity for the Apollo program because of that. But uh, in, in terms of modern day, my, my favorite thing in spaceflight right now is the vast exp- the, the expansion of commercialization we're seeing in space and having all of these smaller satellite providers being able to get on orbit through rideshare programs and things like on the Electron uh, rocket and soon to me Virgin orbit. Well, that, I guess they're functioning now. Mm-hmm. But that's what's exciting me right now. But what got me started really was the Apollo 13 film and then subsequently from the Earth to the Moon HBO series. And I went to space camp and, you know, I've got I'm, I'm a seasoned veteran there. But but yeah, awesome. uh, we're going to have to do a whole another episode about space camp. At yeah, one my, <laughs> my younger self is, is very envious of that. Right. There is an adult space camp, and I kid you not, I am super considering doing adult space camp again in like a vlog style, but I want to do it with other content creators together. I feel like it would be such a fun experience for not only each other, but for the viewers to see other people they like watching online doing this this camp together and just uh, aim, being able to share it. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, that sounds like a super fun kind of project. And I also I can, you know, I can relate to the commercialization of space really reinvigorating these dreams because obviously my whole life I've been a space fan beginning with watching shuttle launches on TV and eventually in person and just, you know, all going through all these different phases. But when I look at my personal dreams about the possibility of being an astronaut, it started really high as a kid because you think anything is possible. And then it got really low as I sort of became an adult. But now, strangely, it's rising again, not because I think that I can get hired by NASA, but because there's so many new opportunities that maybe someday I can buy a ticket regardless of whether I've got the uh, right stuff. That's absolutely true, man. And that's exactly how I've fallen into that pit. You know, I wanted to be an astronaut got older, had other interests and also realized you got to be really smart and like, like just, you know, top 1% of 1% of your class to even just be eligible. 
But that being said, as I got older, I was able to find my own niche in the space, the story of human spaceflight by taking my skills as a communicator and video producer and my passion, which is human spaceflight specifically, but spaceflight in general and marrying that together into a YouTube channel. I mean, I think the human spaceflight aspect is so romantic and it's inspiring a lot of folks like yourself. I think we can share that sentiment with you here at Supercluster in saying that we're really excited about the commercialization of space. It's creating an industry where people who are even outside the launchers can make careers or make a brand or make something special from space exploration, even if they're not engineers or astronauts. Um, we're seeing a whole industry pop up of creators, whether it's YouTube or film or television or you know even digital media. We're seeing it advertised in marketing. But the commercialization of space speaks to not only private rockets, it speaks to the expansion of the industry itself into more disciplines. And I think you're a great example of that. Yeah, man, it's it's just so exciting. Where this decade we're in right now is going to be some of the most exciting stories in spaceflight we'll ever see. You know, I, I, I re- I'm really excited about the the Artemis program and the many forms it will take, but also the it's v- much more nuanced and complicated than what the Apollo program was, and oh, that's not even talking about what companies like SpaceX and Blue and and United Launch Alliance are doing in terms of innovations. It's just such an exciting, exciting decade to be in. And I'm thrilled that I've set myself up to be in a position where I can cover it. Yeah. I was just going to recount this feeling of how unsure I felt when the shuttle program ended, because I knew that there were plans, but nothing was real. And now that we have gone through that nine years of change and development, it feels so great to be fully optimistic about the things that are coming next. You know, I went from thinking, oh man, I really hope the Soyuz can hold on. And it did amazingly, but to thinking, I don't know which of all these many craft may be the one that I eventually fly on, which is such an amazingly different feeling. I'll never forget that in in 2011, the space shuttle Discovery flew over Washington, D.C. and did several laps and was tailed by a T-38. And I'll never forget just standing and staring, staring up at the sky and knowing that this is going to be the last time Discovery is airborne. It was a very emotional moment for me 10 years ago now, which is crazy. But, you know, 10 years later, I think we're in a way more exciting position than we were in 2011. I agree. Definitely. Now, TJ, looking at your channel, I watched a couple of videos. Uh, One of my favorites is the one on Gwen Shotwell and how she's kind of the day-to-day leader at SpaceX. Mm -hmm. What are some of the topics and content that you find most popular among your subscribers? That's a great question, Robin. And actually, I'm happy you liked that video because if you like that one, you're going to love my next episode, which should be coming out this week. But anyways, you know, it's a really tricky thing to pick topics for YouTube videos, mainly because I got it. I mean, the big elephant in the room is the SpaceX fandom is real. The people cannot take in enough stories and news around SpaceX and Starship. And being a few years ago, all being about Falcon 9, now being about Starship. But I really want to highlight more than just what SpaceX is doing. Granted, they're doing great work and they are arguably the industry leader in a lot of different ways, but doesn't discount the fact that there are other companies and people doing really important work. So what the challenge 
challenge then being if I want to cover, say, the Curiosity rover, the Perseverance rover, rather, well, that's launched on a United Launch Alliance booster and it was built by JPL. And SpaceX is not involved in that project. But what I my take on it was, OK, how is the f- discoveries of Percy going to impact SpaceX's Mars future settlement plans? You know, what are the discoveries that Percy is going to make that future settlers or visitors, however you want to call them, are going to have to take into account. So my video on Percy was through the lens of future Mars settlement, specifically by SpaceX, but I was able to tell the story of Percy Mm -hmm. through that lens, which really helped make it more palatable for a wider audience. And I'm not the only YouTuber uh, who's doing that right now. There's other creators out there who you'll see they'll lead with the SpaceX of things, but they themselves want to tell the other stories. So they, they expand on that. So all that to be said, that's kind of the, the trick that a lot of content creators have to make right now. And also not going down the rabbit hole of being too much of a somebody who is favoring one company or another and really trying to be balanced because something that's important to me is right. to be a respected voice as well as somebody who is trying their best to give an unbiased opinion. Right. And I need to constantly check myself and, and put myself out there to be criticized. So that's the balance I'm always trying to to bring about. And uh, really outside, what, what excites me is not so much telling the story about the company, but telling the story about the people. And, and Gwen Shotwell is a great example. I think you're just trying, you're trying to be fair too, is what I can tell in your video. And I think using SpaceX as a doorway to tricking people into learning you, I mean, I am one of that idea where you do sometimes have to trick people into learning. And mm-hmm. I think that playing off of something that's popular, something that's easily accessible to people as a doorway or like you said, a lens is smart. And, you know, credit goes to SpaceX here for getting people excited about space exploration again, mm-hmm. you know, just in general. So I think it's fair. I think it's okay to lead with SpaceX sometimes because, you know, they do, I think, deserve a lot of credit for kind of opening the public's eyes again to what we're doing over here. Yeah. And the one thing with Gwen, I just wanted to add, she wouldn't be as good of a manager or leader at SpaceX if it wasn't for her experience with a lot of legacy government contractors in the aerospace industry. And a lot of credit goes to Elon for picking her up because she knows how to run an aerospace company, and she knows how to get contracts. And she would not have been able to do that if she had just started out out of just started out at SpaceX. And that's something I want listeners and viewers to understand is if you want to go work in space, the first step doesn't have to be SpaceX. There's so many other companies and opportunities out there that can get you started and get you excited. Yeah, I agree. But I think that there's also this aspect of thinking of each of these companies, aside from the actual personnel, but the company itself is the characters in the space story, much in the way that when we are thinking about space, we naturally think about NASA, or we naturally think about Russia. There are just these elements that anchor that story in a context. And I think it's really helpful to the audience to continuously do that and to use that, as you said, as a, as a door towards these lesser known stories. And I think that's why it aligns 
aligns, honestly, from a marketing perspective as well. That's why it aligns with what's successful is that's a way in for somebody. It's a way for that headline to catch their eye rather than just pass by as something isolated. And I think that pointing out the ways that different space organizations and agencies and personalities interact helps people connect with the broader story rather than just seeing these as disparate one-offs that don't really that don't really become part of a larger narrative. One yeah. thing I don't like sometimes a lot of the larger media companies that do have clickbaity headlines when you're doing a story about ULA, well the headline will be SpaceX competitor. And I, that to me that's I, I don't know if I would ever do that obviously, but I, I just think that's a little bit lower than the bar than we're talking here. You know, it's I think like, that makes a good point that it's a, <laughs> yeah. the difference between erasure and just yeah. inclusion of something else. Right. You know, yeah, in one case, exactly. you're erasing <laughs> the real characters in the story. And in another case, you're just relating them to other ones. Right. But, you know, TJ, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today, you're, you're doing a really special project uh, through your YouTube channel. And this project is flying on a ULA mission. Now, we love ULA and uh, we love covering their missions just like you did. We covered Mars Perseverance. We are still going to be covering that mission. But the launch is really special for us. We sent our photographer, Eric Kuna, to shoot it. But, you know, tell us about ULA. And because your project that you're launching, tell us about that and the payload. But tell us about the rocket too, because I think it's exciting. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, just a big picture thing. I started a project called I Need More Moon, where I wanted to send something to the lunar surface on the Peregrine Lunar Lander being launched by United Launch Alliance on the inaugural launch of their Vulcan Centaur booster. That's a bit of a mouthful. But there's so many unique things about this project, not my project, but this mission in particular. And we can first talk about the rocket, which is the Vulcan Centaur. Yes. It is... It's almost like this beautiful rocket puzzle that's been put together, and it makes a lot of sense when you look at the booster. It's using two BE-4 engines provided by Blue Origin as the engines provided by the for the core stage. Mm-hmm. It's using the not the same, but it's using upgraded versions of the solid rocket boosters that the Atlas V uses, uh, provided by Northrop Grumman. And it is, I think, I'm pretty sure it's going to be able to, when, if you really deck it out with, I believe, up to six solid rocket boosters, it is count as a super heavy launch vehicle. And there is a plan in the long term to recover the core stage engines so that right. they'll later be able to be reused because those are literally about 90% of the cost for the core stage. Right. And, and ULA's was like, you know, we don't want to recover the entire core stage. We just want to recover the engines. So that's mm-hmm. another exciting project that they're trying to take on with recovering um, those engines. TJ, this recovery, because I know that our listeners, when they, when they hear this, in their heads, they're going to see a booster landing on the ground. <laughs> when we yeah, hear not that. <laughs> not, not that. Not that. So now let's uh, just real quick. The Vulcan engine recovery, the economic sustainability is something touted by ULA, and it makes a lot of sense. Capturing these engines, correct me if I'm wrong here, TJ, via a carrier helicopter and a net, right? Is that still the plan? As far as we know, that is still the plan. You know, they haven't really announced much about it as of late. I know I bother Tori Bruno Tori Bruno on Twitter a few mm-hmm. times a year about this, just to get any like, hey, you know, any progress in booster and the engine recovery system. And he'll either be like one word answer, like, yep, 
like mm-hmm. as if there was progress, but not giving me any details. Right. So as far as we know, yes, it'll be a helicopter landing. Um, at the very least, it will be an ocean landing later recovered by uh, with a ship. Mm-hmm. I know that you salt water is not great for any kind of technology, especially rocket engines. So they'd like to not get it in the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean if possible. But you can still flush them and and and, and refurb them. You can still refurbish them, yeah. It's yes. just longer and harder. And you have to go through more stringent testing afterwards after salt water touches your spacecraft. Spacecraft and salt water, it's the two things you want to keep as far apart as possible. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that's the plan right now. I believe they're calling it smart reusability. The smart stands for something. But yeah, that's not in the immediate roadmap. That's in the long term roadmap. Map. They're going to need to get some launches under their belt before they can really begin testing that. Uh, but there's something right. really smart though about this booster that a lot of people don't realize is that yes, its first launch is going to be at the end of 2021, but. Several components of this booster have been tested on the Atlas V already so that when they are able to launch this thing for the first time, they'll be able to put a real payload on the booster and not just ballast because they've been able to test out so many new pieces of technology uh, on the Atlas V. Things like their new fairing technology, the boosters, uh, their avionics, a lot of of parts of the technology that from the Atlas V are being applied into the Vulcan Centaur. So on its inaugural launch, a lot of it has flown already. The Centaur upper stage has flown several times. So uh, it's a new booster, but it's using a lot of flight-proven parts. That's amazing. Also, just from a visual standpoint, the idea of six solid rocket boosters is pretty sci-fi in my head. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> yeah. nuts, dude. It's absolutely nuts. And something that I'm, I'm excited about is for our launch, for the inaugural launch, it's in the configuration with two solid rocket boosters. Technically speaking, the Peregrine Lunar Lander is small enough that they don't need those solid rocket boosters to send it into TLI. But because of the first mission, I think they wanted to just do a head-to-toe test. So they're putting two boosters on there. Anyways, so this thing is going to have like way more delta v than required to send this thing to the moon wow so it so in terms of total capability it has way way more delta v required to get to the moon i guess you could send a a bigger payload of course but yes yeah the range like the overall range of its capability is pretty out there yeah, and that's the thing with this booster is it's going to have a much greater payload capacity than what the Atlas V and the Delta IV are going to be able to provide. And what's smart with ULA is that they're going to centralize their process all into this one booster. The Delta IV and the Atlas V family of rockets both kind of had their own particular skill sets that they were really good at. And the Vulcan is the opportunity for them to marry those skill sets into one booster using the flight proven uh, hardware. Amazing. TJ, what's the deal with the lander? Shout out to (laughs) Astrobotic and our friend Jennifer Lopez, who works over there. Now, obviously, will this be the first private lunar lander technically? I believe it'll be the first private lunar lander. And I know that it'll be the first American lunar lander since Apollo 17, believe it or not. That's amazing. Wow. See, I was wow. trying to parse that in my brain because Jamie and I were working. Yeah. It breaks your head. Jamie and I were doing Apollo 17 work yesterday and my brain froze. I was like, wait a minute. Is this the like, you know, the first private one and first American one from Apollo 17 is a really amazing stat, whichever way you look at it. So tell us what you know about 
this this lander because I visited Astrobotic at IAC before the apocalypse. They were so excited about it. I got to take a look at the model and it just looks so super sci-fi. And the when I talked to their team, it seems like they were so serious about making this lunar lander something that establishes a foundation for, you know, sending stuff to the moon regularly, you know? And I love their vision. You've obviously been able to work with them in some way, TJ. Tell us about the lander. So the you're absolutely right that the Peregrine Lunar Lander is really going to be, it's a couple things. It's part of the Artemis program. And in the Artemis program, NASA contracted out several private lunar landers to go to the lunar surface to test out a lot of different systems that will be later integrated into the uh, human landing system that will be putting human beings on the surface of the moon on the South Pole. So Astrobotics uh, Peregrine Lunar Lander is part of that. It's the first lander that is part of this program that'll be going to the moon. And something that is really great about this lander is because it is a privately developed and managed lander is that they had a lot of opportunity to add on additional payloads onto the lander that didn't necessarily have to be all vetted by NASA. They're getting paid to do the various different, uh, I don't know, I don't remember off the top of my head, but the various different demonstrations of technology that the they'll need for at least the landing of the human landing system. I'm pretty sure that's the primary goal for mm-hmm. Peregrine for NASA because the Peregrine lunar lander is actually not going to last any longer than one lunar day. I don't think they believe it's going to survive lunar night because it gets so cold. So it's tech, the technology demonstration for the human landing system is for the landing sensors and the algorithms they'll be using for the, the larger lander. So the Peregrine Lunar Lander has several different payloads on board it. Uh, it is going to be the only payload on top of the Vulcan Centaur rocket, and it'll be landing on the northeasternly part of the moon. So if you're standing on Earth, which we all should be, I think, and you look up at the moon, the northeasterly part of the moon is where we'll be landing. So it'll be on the near side, and you know we'll be able to technically see it. And it'll be... You mean like with a telescope? You know, it's going to be so small. It's going to be super small. It's smaller than the Apollo lunar lander. Okay. So you won't be able to see it with a telescope, but <laughs> technically we could see those sites too. They're just so small, you can't see them. Right, 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 right. But you will be able to see images of it from the Lunar Recon- Reconnaissance Orbiter. Oh, that's going to be awesome. I, yeah. Uh, and I something love- that's really cool with the mission is that they're, they're part of the mission is to send high resolution images and HD video from the lunar surface. So I'm excited to see that. I can get on board with that. I love missions. I think, and a lot of people don't agree with me, but I do think that making the video component to these missions really, really important. It's so critical. Not to like a primary level, obviously, but I think video and, and photography are extraordinarily important part of these missions. And I'm really glad that Astrobotic is doing something there. It's something that needs to be done. Yeah, you can't ignore the inspiration factor. Like ultimately the idea, um, not only is it important to follow human stories because that's where the real story is, you know, behind every crude or uncrewed mission is all kinds of humans following some kind of dream. But just the idea that, you know, it's important to get people behind these endeavors. And if you want to be able to tell that story, telling it vividly is crucial. But also there have been countless times when these types of documentations either started in science and ended up being just visual goodness for the world or Mm. went in the opposite direction where science has been done from photography and film that originally was just documentation and later became data. Right. 
And the data aspect is really important too. A uh, good point, Jamie. Yeah, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that aspect, and this this I don't believe will be the uh, only launch of the Peregrine. I believe that they will be sending up more Peregrines, but it is the the little sibling to their Griffin Lander, which is much bigger, which is going to have several lunar rovers on board it. But Peregrine does have a lunar rover that will be on board it. It is manufactured by an, a British company. I cannot remember their name off the top of my head. It is a very small lunar rover that will deploy on the surface of the moon. So that is one of the many payloads that will be on board. And the other one, which we'll get to, is the DHL moon box, which is what I'm uh, participating in. Okay, so DHL, we're talking about this Earth, the Earth-based delivery mm-hmm. service. Now, yep. that's exciting for me. I love when everyday brands are doing space stuff. So please explain how this came together. Yeah, so DHL, I, I believe it's a long-term contract with Peregrine. Mm-hmm. They've put together what's been called the Moonbox, which essentially is a cylinder in which they will be selling these very small payload capsules to anybody in the world. Anybody can just type in on Google DHL Moonbox and mm-hmm. you can spend a varying amount of, of money. I believe the cheapest one's $600 and the most expensive one's like $24,000. The bigger the capsule, the more it costs. But anybody can buy a capsule and put basically whatever you want in it they do have rules for what you can't but it's that's not that limited actually and you put your payload in the capsule you mail it back to astrobotic and they'll put it in the moon box and send it to the moon and uh, when they land on the moon they will take a picture of the capsules on the surface so the way i got involved with this is kind of it's very it's very youtube it's very internet-y i'm on my discord pat last june or may last may or june and somebody shares with me, hey, did anybody see the pair? Did you guys see anything about the Peregrine Lunar Lander going up on Vulcan? And we just all started talking about, you know, in the Artemis program, and we start poking around the Astrobotic website, and we notice, what is this Moonbox? Wait, can you just buy a payload on Moonbox? And that was like really just sparked my attention because I was like, what if this was an opportunity for me to do something for my viewers that? I don't think anybody's been able to do before. So back in May, I started conversations with several different companies to figure out a way to do what NASA and JPL has done in the past with sending names to, you know, Mars, Venus, the sun, what have you. Turns out that's really hard to do the engravings. And it's very expensive because you're using extremely expensive so of sometimes even equipment that requires classification to classified equipment. Oh yeah. It's uh, like military do. equipment. Yeah. Right. So like yeah. the, the laser that JPL uses, the diameter of the laser is a single micron. And mm. as far as these companies I've worked with, know, they're, that's the only laser they know in existence that can do a laser in that diameter. But we know, I have found that through research that there are other providers that have a single micron diameter laser but you're not supposed to be able to use them. Okay. So because they're JPL, they have access to that. Yeah, this was going to say JPL. Yeah. Has, they're, they're like, that's like Hogwarts over there. And exactly. Yeah, you exactly. either have to sell it to them or they're going to build one in their garage. Yeah, exactly. When you see a single micron, that breaks my brain that we ha- are engraving stuff at that level. Yeah, it's, it's only something you could read through a microscope. Mm-hmm. And anyways, what I wanted to do was how can I send as many names to the moon as possible? Because that's seems like something relatively attainable. Mm -hmm. So I first looked into, okay, what if I send an SD card, right? 
NASA's done it. They sent, they put an SD card on the Parker Solar Probe. And the more I looked into it, the more issues I ran into, primarily being that space is mean and it likes to destroy things, uh-huh. mainly with radiation and extreme temperatures. You know, the temperature swing is like 150 degrees Celsius, 200 degrees Celsius between night and day. It's just insane. And that likes to destroy stuff. And also solar radiation is terrible for, for memory cards. So it's like, okay, well, we could send an SD card, but what if I want to do something permanent? And that's where we started looking into what NASA and JPL have done. And that's what created the other com- my other conversations with these engraving providers. And I was able to find a company called Control Laser. They're in Florida. And a lot of their clients are clients like SpaceX and NASA and Lockheed Martin and the other big DOD contractors. They do stuff like this for them. And they were very gracious because they know that I am... As independent YouTuber, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily dealing with Apollo era budget here. Right. So we came up with a deal where they would do this project for me at cost and with no markup or anything because they felt like it was something that was for good of all mankind or humankind. Wow, that's really cool. Well, yeah, wow. it, took a while, it took a while for me to negotiate that because you have to realize this is a single application. Think about it this way. The most, exp- the most expensive airplane built is the first one on the assembly line. They get cheaper with every single other one you build. So like the first F-35 is like, what, $20 billion. And then the second one is like $1 billion. So with that being said, the issue with this was I'm only making one. And this is a company set up to make thousands and thousands of whatever your product, whatever their product is. So this is a really unique project for them, to say the least. Because their entire company infrastructure is, they're like, yeah, well, development is pretty expensive, but actually making them is cheap once you've paid for the development. I was like, yeah, well, I'm not doing that. I'm doing one. So so the whole project got very expensive very fast. So anyways, uh, we worked for months on figuring out the proper material to use. We looked at gold, aluminum, plastic even. And when you're going down to a microscopic level, there's actually a lot of pitting and issues on the surface of those materials that makes it really hard to write small. Um, And Mm -hmm. the laser that Control Laser has is an 8 micron laser, which is still insanely small. But even at a microscopic levels with an 8 micron laser, you can see a lot of defects. And we decided to land on with was silicate because at a microscopic level, it's very smooth. So which is a more expensive material, but it was what we need for the mission. And this is something I wanted to last for forever. Technically, the only thing, only reason why it wouldn't last forever is if like a, an asteroid hit it or something. So that anyways, anyways, so we picked, yeah, so we picked, (laughs) so we picked that material and then we worked for a long time figuring out what, what's the best font to use that allows for the least amount of space. What's the typeface, the spacing between the letters? What's the smallest I can go? What's the spacing between the lines? How much more focus can they get the laser? Because even though the laser was good for eight microns, right. it needs to be focused at that level. And that's something they never really had to do before. So we initially started out with guesstimating, okay, well, if you have this little, you know, quarter inch in diameter piece of silicate we engrave on both sides you know we think we can maybe do about 2500 names if you know everybody stays around eight or nine characters and that was another thing figuring out how many characters to do and all that per name that was like a mathematical nightmare it sounds like a design nightmare yes it was dude it was nuts all these things i never considered being an issue were issues and it became like a real material science thing that i was doing in my basements to send to the yeah. moon 
If you are interested, by the way, in going into that story in more detail, I it, I just have to mention that one of our creative collaborators is this company, Grand Army, that helped actually co-found Supercluster. And they're a graphic design agency. And one of their specialties is typography and like every little nuance of type design. So I'm sure that if you're interested, they would love to do a deep dive on exactly what that process is. And the typographic implications of sending something to the moon is absolutely interesting to, to the world out there. I think that's yeah, just a yeah. great detail of this. I would be happy to talk about that because you need to pick letters that take up the least amount of space, but also you can read them, you right. know, and it needs to be at a certain resolution per letter so that if you were to look at it, you could say, oh, that's an R. Oh, that's a Q. And also not every letter is made equal. Q's and mm-hmm. A's are the bane of my existence. <laughs> so figuring that part out was like, you know, oh, just because you can look at it, read an A doesn't mean you can read a Q and vice versa. So wow. that was like another aspect of this that was like, oh, geez. And also figuring out if it needs to be all caps or, or whatever. But anyways, mm-hmm. we got that sorted out. And simultaneously to maybe figure, figuring that part out, I had to figure out, okay, how am I going to tell people how I'm doing this, but also do it in a way that it's organized because the internet naturally is very unorganized and no matter how much how many how clearly you explain something in an announcement video uh-huh. people are not going to listen <laughs> and and then complain about something so it took a lot of thought and effort to put up create the form so that it worked right word word things carefully in my video and then execute on it afterwards so and so far so good at the beginning of december i closed submissions for the engraving and also by the way that was all for free That's amazing. Yeah. So I didn't want to charge people to put their names on the engraving, but it was like I had to tell them it was first come, first serve, you know? So I mean, there's only X amount of spots. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So anyways, what I did ask for, though, is if you wanted to become a patron to help me pay for this project, which severely put me in the red, I'll just say that. Of course. Going to the moon is actually really expensive, um, no matter what you are. (laughs) um, I mean, making something that won't degrade on the moon, I really applaud your commitment to finding something real and not symbolic. I think that's pretty rad. Yeah, I'm literally staring at them right now, by the way, which is really cool. It's like I'm like this, this, these, these items that are sitting on my desk are going to be on the moon in a year. It's just Uh, maybe we should grab some photos or something later on so we can show them. I was wondering if they act like, I mean, is it like a diffraction? Is it rainbowy because of the tininess of They're the black? Uh, I'm actually, Robin. If you have a macro lens, I'd love to use it because I have a t- microscope that I'm taking a few thousand images with of the surface, and I'm going to put together a composite image of the whole thing once oh, I'm wow. done with that. Nice. So I can take a pick as high of resolution of the surface as I can, and then I'll put it together into one big image. But I'm happy to take some pics. I actually need to do some more high res stuff with it, but I'm happy to share it with you guys. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. I think so people you actually can that. with the naked eye. If you put your eye up close enough, you can see, you can make out that there's words on it. You can't okay. read it with the naked eye, but you can see that there's, that they're there. Wow. Um, Don't worry. Aliens anyways, have good eyes. And when they oh, find yeah. it, they will use their <laughs> alien technology and alien eyes and yeah. read those incredible names. And, uh, I, I, and what I promised people was like, listen, I'm going to be able to send your name to the moon. I can't promise anything else beyond that, but it will get there and we can all be part of the mission. And it was just an opportunity to get people excited about this, this mission and, and make it personal. 
you know? And for me, I can say for myself, this mission is the most exciting mission that for me, it, it, it even surpasses DM2 or Crew 1 because I'm like part of it. And I'm hoping that other people are able to get excited about that as well. And I would never have this opportunity if it wasn't for commercial partners trying to create a product to purchase, you know? Yeah. So anyways, we closed the submissions in December. They we they finished making them in the first week of January. I've had them in my hand for a few weeks now. And I have to, sm- I have to ship them off to Astrobotic in March so they can add it to the moon box. But anyways, in addition to this, I was like, okay, well, I still want to send an SD card. So what do we have to do with this? And this is where the science part gets even more fun, guys. So a very generous patron of mine is also a computer programmer and came up with the idea of what if we made a software raid to put on the SD card? So Uh the data was spread out amongst the entire card. So if radiation damaged one part of it there's it's duplicated on another part of the car oh it's got parity enough so that you can back up so it's essentially like if there were yeah just to to explain to everybody a raid array there's a lot of ways you can use a raid array but what we're describing here is effectively using multiple drives and each drive has at least enough data to reconstruct the entirety of the data so if a meteor hits three of the drives all the other drives still work but we're just partitioning one memory card to act as if it has a lot of drives on it is is that right yes so one so and i actually just upgraded our our uh, capsule to a bigger capsule so i'm going to send two SD cards with software raids on them of the same data. So each card's 128 gigs, but I can only use 64 gigs because we'll have one-to-one parity on each one. So we have a software raid on them to protect the data. And then I'm also encapsulating them in lead. So if somebody in the future finds these micro SD cards on the lander, they'll first have to dust off their ancient card reader and then they'll be able to open it up and look at what people have sent. And I've all, so I also opened it up to people being able to, so, so the SD cards, in addition to the engraving are working as one thing that's overflow. So I have over 15,000 names so far signed up. So anybody who didn't make the engraving is on the SD card. Nice. And then also for patron supporters, which is like for $3, you get a hundred megabytes on the card to send whatever you want. So, yeah, Yeah, that's a cool opportunity. So, anyways, people have been sending family photos, drawings, making home movies. People have uploaded their books and video games that they programmed. It's just been such an amazing, rewarding experience, uh, more than I could have ever imagined. And, uh, you know, people sending up love, like information about their loved ones who passed away, family trees. It's just so awesome. So we're, we're getting pretty close to filling up that 64 gigs now, but we're, I think we're going to be fine. But with that being said, this project in a small package is much bigger and exciting than I think than what we're, where we started. And it's been really rewarding for me to be able to, to pull off the engraving, to pull off the other bits of this to make it just exciting for everybody. And yeah, so that's, that's the project in a nutshell, very long winded, but there's a lot of side story nuances to it that have just made it really fun, just science and space project. And I, I want to do it again. Hopefully we'll be able to get on the next moon box and do it even bigger and better next time. We'll join yeah. you on that one for sure. And um, I think it's, this is a cultural project too. I mean, you're preserving slices of human life, which are amazing. And I, there is a little bit of a, an arc vibe to it. And also just preserving people's memories, uh, preserving human memories, just as a, a culture and a civilization. And that part of it excites me, along with just people being able to have a personal connection to the moon. 
is a big step in opening up space access. Yeah, that statement of possibility that this action makes, the demonstration that, yes, we can do this, and your approach to solving each of the challenges in the same way that you would approach any space challenge, I think is going to make it real for people in a way that it just has not been in the past. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the biggest takeaway that what makes this project just the most exciting is that anybody can do this. If you want, if anybody listening wants to do this, you can do it. I am not anybody who's particularly special. I'm just motivated. And if you're motivated and you want to get, be involved in spaceflight and be part of the story, you can do it. It's been a lot of work, but it's been very rewarding. I'm very much looking forward to when I mail off the payload and it's on now Astrobotic. And I also want to follow what TJ just said. If you are you know, looking for something new. If you're a writer, a creative, a videographer at Supercluster, each of us wear a million different hats. There's lots of skills needed in space exploration right now that are beyond people building rockets. We need thinkers. We need cre- creators. We need people to communicate this stuff to the public. Try- that message is something we're always trying to get out there. Do not be afraid to apply for that space adjacent job or space opportunity, reach out to people like TJ, reach out to people like Supercluster and a lot of our contributors. We're also all willing to help other people get into the community and the industry. A lot of ways is why we created Supercluster. And, you know, like TJ said, why he created his channel to sort of get more people interested. That's always the mission. And I think the main thing to to communicate here is there is no skill out there that's not needed. So when you think of working or broadening your horizons for your career, space exploration has a role somewhere for you. And I'm glad you brought that up, TJ. 100%. What do we need to know about your mission now? You said that you're still taking submissions on the website, which is exciting for myself. Um, I'm I'm blessed to work in the space industry. And whenever I see folks sending their names to Mars or the sun or wherever, I love sharing that and getting the community excited, but I never actually put myself on that stuff because I feel like I get to work in space every day. So I, I never do those things myself, but one day I probably will you know, put my name on something. But what, what do we need to know now going into this mission? So first off, what's the timeline? And two, how freaking nervous are you? Can we always ask our we always ask our payload guests grim questions because I don't know it's, you know we we love talking about the exciting stuff but you you know more than most this stuff is risky there's always a risk going to the moon landing on the moon ain't easy we've seen failures even in the last couple of years we're not gonna uh, you know beat a dead horse it's part uh, but of the excitement yeah it's it does, part of the it excitement. does add to the uh, feeling the adventure. But what what's your emotion as you were getting closer to this launch? And tell us when we can expect this launch to happen, because obviously Supercluster will be there and people will be watching. So, um, in terms of the timeline, for personally, still taking submissions till February 1st, and then I'm going to be taking that one month to prep the payload for Astrobotic. And then in March, I'll be mailing it off to them where they will be integrating it into the Moonbox. Once those, all, myself and the other payloads are integrated into Moonbox, they will then integrate it onto the lander and ship it off to Florida to be integrated onto the Vulcan Centaur booster which I believe is net December right now, if I can remember correctly, December 2021. So it'll be the end of this year mm-hmm. where they will be launching it to the moon. 
And that's where it gets uh, nervous, nerve-wracking, because, yeah, it needs to not only survive the launch, but then it has to land on the freaking moon. Right. So <laughs> That's the pretty terrifying part. But also, yeah. but also, you're launching on a new rocket. Yeah, so th- that's super exciting. We're launching on the new rocket, and it'll be roughly a four-day journey uh, to the moon, and then hopefully we... The Peregrine survives the landing, and our payload will be safely on the surface, and I hope to go pick it up one day. But, if you uh, could go yourself and pick it up. Yeah, yeah I hope so. That would be really cool. <laughs> now, I just want to say also, because uh, I mentioned that it's a new rocket. When it comes to flight reliability, ULA is the leader. And if I were TJ, I would feel pretty confident about launching this payload on top of that rocket. Even if it's a quote-unquote new rocket system, I think ULA's track record is pretty incredible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was just double-checking my, my my timing here. It looks like it's announced Q4 2021, so it'll be at the end of the year. But I'm feeling pretty good about Vulcan Centaur. It's the lander, I think, is the real... That's the challenge, um, wild card, right? yeah. you know, because we know yeah. how hard it is to land. I know Astrobotics doing their best, and there there's a lot of smart they people a, over there. They're a crack team over there, and I uh, have a lot of confidence in them. I was really excited when I visited with them in DC a couple of years or last year or a couple of years. You no, know, I, I was actually there, and I saw that booth. I'm sorry we didn't run into each other. I know that's right because I, I can't even put a timeline on when that happened. That was like Earth. That was. As they say in Firefly. Yeah, it was it was just <laughs> before the the world melted. Okay. Top Earth that was during yeah. the Congress. <laughs> I um, gotta mention, by the way, that that name Vulcan Centaur just keeps making me think of a like half man, half horse with pointy ears right. that doesn't express emotions. <laughs> you know, like, oh yes, it's the Vulcan Centaur from Star Trek. Oh, all right, hold on. Um, we got we're gonna make a Vulcan Centaur for you. Yeah, right? yeah, that'll be a Photoshop right. that shows up. TJ, do you know how they got the name Vulcan? Because I I assumed it was, you know. Vulcan from from Star Trek, but is there any other story there? Like, how did they get that name? I honestly don't know. I'd assumed it was Vulcan from Star Trek, and it's also a bird. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, That's so that bird. was. I was like, it's one or the other, but maybe there's a deeper story. It's also kind of like a really cool sounding name. Yeah. So now, yeah, uh, a couple of years ago, there was talk of ULA changing their name and rebranding. And my input into that, which no one there listened to, was just make your company name Vulcan. You know, that I, I, that was my input. I love the name Vulcan. Uh, you know, United Launch Alliance just doesn't have a ring to it. I Googled it so that we can sound more informed and pretend that we knew. Um, <laughs> or we can just keep in this, I'm me this confessing to have Googled it. But in mythology, Vulcan is the god of fire, including the fire of volcanoes, deserts, metalworking, and the forge in ancient Roman religion and myth, oh. um, often depicted with a blacksmith's hammer. So that sounds very rocket related and, uh, as well. Their logo, TJ, is kind of a flame, isn't it? Yes, it is. Okay. It's a V with on fire. Okay. Uh, so maybe it is that. Okay. Yeah. We all learned something. Thank you, Internet. So smart. <laughs> Thanks, but also, you know they were thinking of Vulcan from Star Trek because this industry is all Trekkies. Come on. <laughs> well, they were, there's no way they were unaware. Yeah, that that, they, we'll I mean, put it someone that way. in there was like, yo, this is because of Star Trek. So thank you again, TJ, for coming on. It was really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. This was a lot, really fun conversation. 
Yes, and we wish you best of luck on your mission. I also hope that in the distant, distant future, some extraterrestrials land on the moon, 3D print a card reader, and spread your story further into the cosmos. Uh, Everybody out there, don't forget to visit the website if you want to send your name as well. And for more great space stories, be sure to visit supercluster.com. And remember, as always, space is for everyone. 